My gracious Father, we just come before you, Lord, as your children, submitted, Lord, to know you better. Here today, Father, to hear your word, to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would love him more and serve him more, that we would understand him more, Lord, and we would be more like him. Just give us the wisdom, Lord, as we look into your word to change our lives based upon what Jesus Christ instructed and showed and the example he set. Help us to encourage one another as well, Lord. Help us to have the right response to Jesus, the adoration and the worship that he deserves. And when we encounter those with agitation or apathy for him, Lord, help us to pray for them. Help us, Lord, to have a burden for those who don't know you like we do. I pray for Catherine this morning, Lord, that you would just be especially near and dear with her as she speaks, that their message would be clear and that the lives would be changed by it. And we'll just give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. How are you? Would you open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 2? Last week we were in Luke chapter 2. This week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. And this is the second part of our outline, continued from lesson number 6. And um, last week we looked at fulfilling the law. If you weren't here for that, pick up the tape. It's number 6. T today, Lord willing, we're going to talk about fulfilling the prophets. You know, the Lord Jesus was born under extreme, extremely humble conditions. We all know that. You know, he was born in a stable or a cave. He was laid in a food trough. Um, there was no one around except his mother. I guess his father had to be the midwife or whatever. Uh, very, very, very humble circumstances. But it's interesting how those humble circumstances were countered by several events of great honor for him. The first such honor was the host of heavenly angels who came to announce his birth to some shepherds. And we talked about the fact that those were probably temple shepherds, shepherds who raised the lambs to be sacrificed in the nearby temple in Jerusalem. The second high honor at the Lord's birth came from two elderly, godly people, Simeon and Anna. We discussed them last week. And they also adored or gave um, adoration and honor to the Christ child in the temple. And they... Um, this emphasized the fact to Mary and Joseph primarily that indeed their baby, eight-day-old baby, was the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman, all the way back from Genesis 3.15. That was the second high honor which came at the time of his birth. The third such high honor concerns the Magi, more commonly known as what? The wise men who came from an eastern country, we don't know which country, but an eastern country to worship Christ and to present him with some very symbolically meaningful and expensive gifts. And that's primarily what our focus is going to be on as we look at um, the arrival of the wise men, part one, or part A, I should say, under section two, fulfilling the prophets. We're going to discuss the arrival of the wise men, and we're going to look at the agitation of Herod the apathy of the chief priests, and the adoration from wise men. Remember, we, we called this lesson three responses to Jesus, and we've already discussed one response, and that was the right response, the response of adoration and worship, which came from Anna and Simeon. We're going to continue that right, a look at that right response of adoration and worship as we look now not at 
a testimony from Jewish people, because Anna and Simeon were both Jewish. We had a Jewish man, a Jewish woman. They gave testimony to the Christ child, who he was. Now we're going to have testimony today from Gentiles. The wise men were indeed Gentiles. So if you would look with me, please, at Matthew 2. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, the arrival of the wise men. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. By the way, I, I might not get around to saying this, so maybe I better say it while it's in my mind, where it says his star in the east. Okay, they know that these wise men were in the east. They were east of Jerusalem. The star that they saw was not in the east. They were in the east. Because if you put the star in the east, they would have gone the wrong direction. They would have headed west. Now, I know you might have to think about that, look at a map or whatever, but um, I want that to be on the tape, so it's going to be on the tape. But the, they were in the east, not the star. The star they saw actually probably was in the west. All right? So get that clear. All right, there is no part of the Christmas story which is probably more clouded with misunderstanding than the arrival of the, the wise men, the magi. They did not come, as most people erroneously assume, to the nativity scene in Bethlehem. <clears throat> and uh, We'll talk about that. They weren't there, in other words, when the baby Jesus was lying in the manger. But of course, that's what you see in most nativity scenes, right? And that's the concept that we get. We grow up with that. Our children think the wise men were there, the shepherds were there, the angels were up above. <laughs> you know, one especially hanging up above the manger scene. That's the picture you get in your mind. But the wise men were not at the nativity scene, okay? They came two years later, approximately. Also, regardless of what most people have been taught or heard, we do not know how many wise men there were. Now, most people assume there were three. All right, that probably comes from... We three kings of Orient are. <laughs> and they weren't kings, were they? What were they? Wise men. They were magi, and we'll talk about what the wise men were. They weren't kings, and there probably were not three of them. Um, there, some commentaries say there could have been from as, many, as, as few as two to as many as 14, and one particular commentator said there could have even been as many as 200 of them. But that... <laughs> I jokingly say that would make for a rather expensive nativity set, wouldn't it? Have 200 wise men. I mean, they're pretty expensive as it is. <laughs> um, also, um, that their skulls, now you probably never heard of this, but their skulls are not in a casket in Cologne, Germany. Now this, you know, if you ever go to Europe or if you go to the Middle East, they always have these little tourist traps, you know, come and see the skulls of the wise men. <laughs> I was in Cologne, Germany. I didn't go to see the skulls of the wise men because I knew it was a hoax. Instead, I bought some cologne. That's the smart thing to do. Uh, furthermore, oh, you know where the idea of the three comes from? Right, the fact that they brought the three gifts that we know of, you know, frankincense, myrrh, and gold. I didn't get that in the right order, but that's where they get the idea of three. Neither is there any, any evidence that their names were Casper, I always think of a ghost when I hear that, Casper, Balthazar, and Melchior. And um, that is assumed a lot of times that that's their names, and I don't remember where that comes from. 
nor are we told the specific countries or country from which they came, even though we do know that they came from somewhere east of Israel. Now, magi or wise men, excuse me, I should be having all kinds of pictures up here. Here they are. Speaking of heirs, that is not what they really look like either. <laughs> also, there's a, an, another rumor that says they, they, each one of them, was a, one was a descendant of Shem, one was a descendant of Japheth, and one was a descendant of Ham. So that's why you always find one dark one and then two others, you know, one kind of oriental. They, there's just all kinds of misconceptions about the wise men. Magi first appeared in history as far back as the 7th century BC in eastern Mesopotamia. You know, that's the area of Iran and Iraq today. So it may be that just like Abraham, the Magi came from Ur of the Chaldees, which was in southern Mesopotamia, down in southern Babylonia, same area. They were a priestly caste of men, and they were very, very skilled in such uh, arts as um, medicine and astronomy, especially astronomy and astrology, and of course that's important for our story here. They had uh, developed a sacrificial system which was very similar to the one which God had given to Israel. Uh, they kept a fire going, I know I read about that somewhere, a perpetual fire going when they said that the fire had originated from heaven. But they had a sacrificial system where they offered sacrifices on that fire. Um, they, they were involved, unfortunately, also heavily in the occult and in sorcery. They were especially known for interpreting dreams. And this might remind you, send you back to the book of Daniel if you've ever studied Daniel, because you remember King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had a dream that really upset him one night. Uh, and so he called forth all of his wise men because they were supposed to be the experts at interpreting dreams. They had a slight problem in interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, however, because he couldn't remember what it was. Now that would really put you in a tizzy, wouldn't it? <laughs> they were supposed to interpret it, but he, he said, you, first of all, you have to tell me what it was because I can't remember. I, I have that all the time. I have a dream and I wake up and I, ah, oh, it was a good dream, but what in the world was it? You know, I'd love to call in somebody and say, tell me what that dream was. And as soon as they'd say it, you'd know. You would remember, right? So that was their problem. They, they uh, couldn't interpret the dream because he didn't remember what it was. And they would have lost their heads, by the way. Um, he was going to cut off everybody's head. He got so mad about that and frustrated if it hadn't been for Daniel. It's from the name Magi that we get what word? You're all looking at your notes, so you know. The word magic or magician. And you know in, in Acts chapter 8, there was a man from Samaria named Simon. And they, he was known as Simon Magus because he practiced magic. Because the Magi knew so much about science and um, astronomy and, uh, and agriculture and math and history and the occult, they grew in um, power, they grew in prominence, they were known as the intelligentsia of Babylon, both Babylon and the Medo-Persian empires. They were, um, they, they were the intelligentsia, they were the elite class, they were your professors, you could say, back in those days. From the book of Daniel, we learn that the Magi were among the highest officials in the government. And when Daniel did manage to, to save their necks by going to King Nebuchadnezzar and telling him, because God 
revealed to him. He, he really had the gift of interpreting dreams because his gift came straight from God. God told him what the dream was, and he was able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its meaning, and therefore he saved, you know, he, he spoke on behalf of the wise men and said, spare their lives. And because of that, those wise men really looked up to Daniel. I mean, you would too for a man that had saved your life. And so it's very, very possible that a lot of what they learned about the true God, Jehovah God, they learned from Daniel. He was very, very, and actually he was put in charge of all the wise men after this. King Nebuchadnezzar lifted him up and put him at the head of all the wise men, and, um, and they listened to him. They knew he had some special gifts that they didn't have. They knew he was a godly person. He was. He was. He's one of the only ones in the Bible that nothing negative is ever said about. And so they listened to him, and it's very possible that he is the one that they learned from, you know, who they learned about, who from they learned the true God. And that didn't come out right. Also, we know that when King Cyrus finally allowed the, um, the Jewish people to return to Israel after the Babylonian captivity of 70 years, you know, King Cyrus came along and he said, okay, you are now free to go back to Israel. Many of the Jewish people did not go back to Israel. Most of them did not. They got rather comfortable living in Babylon. They didn't want to go back to a country that had been desolated and start from scratch. So many of the Jewish people stayed in the, the east, in the area of Babylon. I mean, Esther was still there, right? She was in Persia. And a lot of Jews were still there. Um, and therefore, the 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 truth about Jehovah God, you see, spread from these Jewish people. And I'm just trying to tell you ahead of time how these wise men could possibly have known about the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. So the Magi, the, the wise men who came to find the king of the Jews, appear to have been among some of these believing Jews, just like Queen Esther and Mordecai, who had been strongly influenced by Judaism and the prophetic writings, especially uh, the writings of Daniel. Since they did highly esteem Daniel, I'm sure they read his writings. And he would have, of course, told them all about the promised Messiah and, um, and God and everything and about salvation in, in belief in the promised Messiah. So we find that the grace of God is not limited to places nor to families. You know, faith sometimes appears where you least expect it. It's amazing. You know, you wouldn't really expect to find a lot of faith, for example, in China, where the main religion is Buddhism, and yet they say that's the fastest-growing church in the world. And if you've never read this book called Safely Home by Randy Elkhorn, oh, man, go, go out and get it today. It is a fantastic book about the persecution. It's fictional characters, but it's based on the truth of the persecuted church in China, the home churches and the underground church in China and how it's just growing and growing and growing but it will really really convict you about praying for your your sisters and brothers over in China but it's like sometimes it's like a lily among thorns we we, we just don't know what God is doing but he certainly isn't limited in where he can have his grace and his spirit work <clears throat> the spirit of God can lead souls to Christ without the help of many outward means. I mean, we are so blessed in this country. We can run to a Christian bookstore, no problem. I mean, my house alone, I probably have, oh, I wouldn't even begin to know, I'm sure I have well over a hundred Bibles just in my house because we're in the Gideon ministry and we have boxes of Bibles. And I have every, you know, I think I have every, 
interpretation there is. I have a Greek Bible, I have a Hebrew, I have several Hebrew Bibles because my son was in seminary. I mean, we are so immensely blessed. We can turn on BBN radio station or all kinds of godly. We just have no excuse is what it amounts to. And to whom more is given, we are more responsible. So people may be born in dark places like the wise men were. They were definitely born in a dark place. <clears throat> but if they are living up to the light of, of revelation which God has placed in him, and the Bible says that God has placed knowledge of himself into every human being, I mean, you could talk to a little bitty kid and they have no problem believing there really is a God because they haven't been programmed by our culture not to believe in God. God says he has written eternity in our hearts. We can know him innately because he has put a knowledge of himself into us and we can know him by just looking at creation and saying, I came home yesterday from Virginia Beach and we've got these trees that my husband planted early this summer. I cannot believe they've grown this tall. They start out you know, seeds that, that big. And they are now this big. I think they're called a trumpet tree. I don't know if you've ever. And they, there must be a hundred um, white blossoms that are, were open like this, like trumpets. They look just like trumpets. You have to come to my house to see them. They are magnificent. I tried to describe them to Frank last night because he hasn't seen this, and I hope he gets home before they all fall off. But the aroma in my yard was better than gardenias. My whole front yard is just Oh, it's heavenly. And I, I was looking at them. I was just like, I thought, how could somebody see something like that and not believe in a God, in a creator, in an intelligent being? It's magnificent. Anyway, um, so God, you know, people, God can reach people, even if they don't. I've heard, because I've been in the Gideons years and years, of people who come to know the Lord by one little page of, of God's word. Sometimes we give the Bibles to um, prisoners. And I've heard stories where they, they don't bother to read it. You know, they rip out the pages to roll up and make cigarettes. And I've heard stories where, you know, somebody was rolling up to make a cigarette and they read one verse and got saved. <laughs> I mean, you know, if God's spirit is at work, it doesn't take a whole lot. His, his word is alive and powerful. So we have these wise men, and they were definitely wise. I love that little saying at Christmas time: wise men still seek him, because it is so true. Uh, now, you may wonder, how was it that the Magi, the wise men, associated the star, which they saw, not in the east, they were in the east, but they saw the star in the west. Um, how did they associate that with the promised Jewish Messiah? Now, we have to remember, because they were very skilled for their day and age, very skilled, way ahead of their time, in astronomy, they would have been very accustomed to scanning the skies. That would have been their hobby. You know, they were constantly scanning the skies, the heavens, and they would have been very sensitive to any unusual events occurring there. Now, because of Daniel's prophetic writings, as I've already mentioned, they were probably aware of the fact that the arrival of the promised Jewish Messiah was going to be very soon, that it was at hand, that it was near. And the reason I say that is because of the great 70 weeks prophecy, which is found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. If you've never heard of that, you are missing out on the greatest prophecy in all the Bible. I call it the great 70 weeks prophecy. It is an incredible, this is a little chart here all about it, but it is an amazing, fantastic, 
prophecy. And if ever you doubt that the, God, the Bible is God's word, all you have to do is study that prophecy and, and you will have your faith just elevated. <laughs> I do. Whenever I get down, I think of that prophecy. I think, no, there's no way Daniel could have figured that out and known that. You could, from what he gives us in that chapter, those few verses, the wise men or anybody, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious rulers of Israel could have figured out and calculated the exact time of the arrival of the Messiah. You could calculate it right to the day. And so they were wise men. And they had taken Daniel's writings and they had figured out and they knew that it was time for the arrival of the Messiah. And so they were scanning the stars, skies. They also knew that at the time of the birth of the Messiah, there would be a special star in the sky. Now, how did they know that? Not from Daniel. You won't believe how they knew that. You will, because if you're looking at your notes, you see ahead that it came from a prophet named Balaam. And Daniel probably told them about this amazing thing. Now, Balaam, you say, Balaam? You gotta be kidding. Balaam, he was a prophet of God. He was a disobedient, terrible prophet of God, and God had to take his life because he was so disobedient. Actually, Dr. J. Vernon McGee uh, calls him a prophet for profit, and I love that. He was a prophet for profit. He was bought out by King Balak, Balak of Moab, and he, you know, he's paid enough money to actually curse the Israelites. You can read all about it in Numbers chapter 22. So when, when Balaam, God's prophet, received his bribe money from the king of the Moabites, he tried over and over again to pronounce a curse on the Israelites. But of course, every time he opened his mouth, what happened? Instead of a curse, out came a blessing. You know, you can't, you can't curse what God has blessed. It's impossible. You can't do it. And he found out. So very frustrated, he finally devised a very wicked plan to destroy the Israelites. Uh, he, he knew that if they intermarried with the um, Moabites, they would amalgamate and they would take on the Moabites' gods and goddesses and pretty soon they would disappear. And so he told King Balak that wicked, awful, satanic plan. Well, it's interesting to find that, you know, God can use anybody. I know that firsthand because <laughs> I am one mighty weak vessel, but still sometimes he manages to use me. If he could use Balaam's jackass, he could use Balaam. <laughs> and he did. I, I know that God has a sense of humor. Don't ever doubt that God has a sense of humor. <laughs> Just think about Balaam's donkey. Um, so he used, he actually used Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. I want you to start flipping back there. If you would go back to Numbers in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book in the Bible. Go to Numbers 24, 17. God gave to disobedient, greedy, materialistic Balaam one of the most amazing and yet one of the most overlooked prophecies, I think, in all of the Old Testament. By the way, we do have this um, little, the Daniel 70 Weeks Prophecy. This is only 350. It's got two tapes in there, and that'll tell you all about that prophecy. Um, I don't have one on Balaam's prophecy, but we're going to discuss that right now. In Numbers 24:17, Balaam said this. He said, there shall come a star out of Jacob. Now, what's Jacob a name for? Israel. 
There will come a star out of Israel and a scepter. Now that speaks of a king shall rise out of Israel. So you see, knowing that and knowing the approximate time of the arrival, or, or actually they could figure almost to the day of the arrival of, of the Messiah, it's no wonder that the wise men were scanning this, the skies and when they saw this special star appear in the west, they were in the east, they uh, went to Jerusalem. They didn't have to be told where to go. They knew where to go. They knew to go to Israel and they knew to go to the holy city of Israel. And I'll talk about the fact that the star didn't lead them there. They knew by seeing the star that the star said the Messiah had been born, so they, they knew to go to Israel. It's no wonder when they got there that the first thing they asked is, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Because, and then they said, for we have seen his star. Look at that in verse 2 of Matthew. Matthew 2, 2. For we have seen his star in the east. They were in the east, not the star. <laughs> All right? So that's how they know that it was his star from Balaam. Numbers 24, 17. They knew the Old Testament scripture. They knew Daniel's prophecy regarding the approximate time of the arrival of the Messiah. And they knew Balaam's prophecy regarding a star which would announce his arrival. And when the wise men saw that unusual phenomena in the sky, they immediately gathered together gifts worthy of royalty to take to him. And of course, this is where we get the origin of bringing gifts at Christmas time, right? Even though the gifts were about two years later after Christmas, that's where we get the idea of bringing gifts. Now, the gifts were to be given to Jesus. We give the gifts to one another, but that's where the whole origin comes from, the fact that they brought gifts. It was, and it still is, the custom in the East to bring uh, gifts when you approach a king or someone in ro royalty. So gifts in hand, they set out to travel many, many weary miles of hot desert sand, enduring all the fatigue and the dangers that such a trip would bring in order to seek the king of the Jews and the savior of the world. And they didn't stop. They didn't quit until they had found him. And I, you know, you have to ask yourself, how willing am I? How willing am I to go to follow their, how far am I willing to go and follow their example? How far are you willing to go in order to draw closer to Jesus Christ? How much time are you willing to give him? You know, most people aren't willing to give him much time at all. Not even one morning out of their week. Most people don't even go to church on Sunday morning. The Magi may well have spent two years of their lives just to get to Christ. And then, of course, they would have had the return trip home. So they could have spent as much as four years getting over there to worship him, present their gifts, and then return. No matter how fatiguing <clears throat> or how costly, you know, in time or money or effort or any other way you can think of, I can tell you it is always, always, always worth it to draw closer to God, to draw closer to Jesus. There is nothing too costly. Even, you know, I always try to encourage, especially the young girls, and I don't see too many of you out here, which is always so sad, <clears throat> because they always want, they always say, you know, when my children are little, I'll come to a Bible study when they're older. It's just too much trouble to get them all dressed and, and get them, get them there. And there's all kinds of excuses, and I know it's easy to do that. Um, <clears throat> but 
this is the time when they really, really, really need their mommy in the word. They really do. You need, when your kids are little, this is the time you need to be in the word and you need to have Christian fellowship with other women and you will be a better mother for one morning out of the week. I know it was a struggle for me when I went first started Bible study over in Fayetteville because it was 140 miles round trip. And there was no Bible study that I knew of over in Moore County. That's why I prayed for years to, to start one here. Um, and I had three preschoolers. It was, it was not easy, but it was definitely, definitely worth it. And I, another thing, I was listening to my old tape and it brought back some memories. Another thing I remember to tell, I always like to tell women with children still in the home, when you do your homework questions or when you do your Bible study, don't wait till the kids are in bed or don't wait till the kids are in school. Do it. I know maybe you have to do the bulk of it when they're not there, but do some of it when they are present because the most important thing they can see is their mother with her Bible open studying God's Word. They, they are little parrots and they, they imitate everything that you do and if they see that you take God's Word seriously that's going to make the biggest impression on them. And I, I think so many women make the mistake of waiting till kids are in bed before they open up their Bible. Let your children see it, even if you can hardly think, you know. <laughs> Because they're running circles around you. Let them see you try, at least. All right. oh. <clears throat> Today, of course, we draw closer to the Lord through his word. So I hope you're in his word. I imagine you are since you're here. But you, you have to ask yourself, how much time are you spending in his word as compared to how much time are you spending doing a whole lot of other things that really don't matter in eternity? You know what it all boils down to? There's only one life so soon it's passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, don't spin your wheels doing things that really, really don't matter. Don't get involved in volunteering for this and that. If it's just taking up a lot of your time, that really doesn't count for eternity. You know, how much time do you spend going to the hairdresser, going to aerobics, doing this? How much time do you spend on your own body as opposed to how much time do you spend with the Lord? That will tell you really where your priority is right there. Do you get to the end of the day and you know you're just so absolutely fatigued that you say, oh, sorry God, I just didn't, another day has gone by and I just didn't have any time to spend with you. Do you call him Lord, Lord, and yet you do not the things that he says? Do you call him King and yet you don't bring him the gift of yourself? That's what these wise men did. Really, they brought him the, not only their gifts, but they brought him the gift of themselves. So I ask, what is your faith costing you? If it isn't costing you very much, then I can guarantee that you are probably not receiving very much either in return. So please make time for him like these wise, be a wise woman and make time for him. Well, upon reaching Jerusalem, where they, of course, naturally assumed that everyone, you know, all the Jewish people, of course, would be all in an uproar and excited about the fact that their long-awaited Messiah had finally arrived. So when the wise men finally got, after two years of traveling, with probably a big entourage, by the way, they, they didn't come alone, however many there were, they were very wealthy, so they would have all kinds of servants, you know, not just the three lonely guys on the camels, but a big entourage of servants and, um, and maybe even some soldiers to protect them along the way. But it would be a large contingent, contingent of uh, people. 
Um, anyway, when they got to Jerusalem, they, they, they immediately asked probably everybody that they saw on the streets, where is he that is born King of the Jews? Now, it's interesting that the title, the King of the Jews, was used for the very, very first time by these wise men. And what were they? Jews? or Gentiles. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we're already just at the very beginning of our Life of Christ study, and we're seeing so many Gentiles in this picture. It's just incredible. He did come, not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. So the first time the phrase King of the Jews is used, it was used by these Gentile magi, these wise men. And you know what? It is very interesting to find out that that title, the King of the Jews, is not used again during his entire life in the recorded scripture until you get to the very end and it is used once again by another Gentile, Pilate, when he had inscribed above the Lord's cross, this is, uh, what does it say? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? Twice he's called the King of the Jews, both times it's by Gentiles. What did the Jews themselves say? They never did acknowledge Jesus as their king. They said, we will have no king to reign over us but Caesar. The star. Now, the star. Another question we want to ask is, what about the star? Well, the star of Bethlehem, and of course, at Christmas, you see all kinds of stars hanging in people's windows, and on your top of your Christmas tree, you always have a star. So, you know, there's a lot of speculation about the star of Bethlehem. And, of course, um, a lot of controversy over it as well. And I've read many, many commentaries, and they, a lot of them have different ideas about this star. Some say that it was perhaps a conjunction that they know occurred back in those days between two planets. You know, they came together at the sort of the same time, so it made a big bright spot in the sky. And those planets were Saturn and Jupiter. Others have thought that it was a supernova. That's a star which explodes and then it gets very, you know, very bright for a while, and then, of course, it fades away. Others have thought that it was an erratic comet, and some have said that it was a, a low-hanging meteor, all kinds of speculation. But we need to remember that these magi were very astute astronomers for their day and age, and they would have understood the difference between one of these natural phenomena and something supernatural. And so... Um, I don't think that they would have started out on such a, a long journey if what they saw they could attribute to just something natural happening in the sky. Since the Bible doesn't explain or identify exactly what the star is, I can't really stand up here and tell you this is what it was. I can't be dogmatic about it. However, we do know that it did not behave like a normal star at all. It didn't behave at all like a star. It didn't behave like a planet or even two planets coming together. It didn't behave like a meteor. It didn't behave like a comet. When it first appeared, the wise men saw it. Okay, they're in the east, and they saw it. They understood its significance, knowing that the time of the Messiah's birth was near at hand, knowing that a star would announce his arrival from Balaam. So they understood its significance, and therefore they, they headed toward the holy city of Jerusalem. The star did not lead them to Israel. They knew from the scriptures where to go. They saw the star, they loaded up, and they headed off. But the star did not lead them there. Apparently, the star only appeared in the sky long enough for them to see it, for them to realize, you know, what it meant, and to get packed up and go. It did not, as I said, it did not guide them 
to Jerusalem because, you know, they really didn't, God never does for us what we can do on our own. They didn't need a divine guide to get to Jerusalem. They knew how to get to Jerusalem. And so they, they headed off to Jerusalem. However, once they left Herod, we're going to get to this in a little bit, you know, they went, they asked people in the city, nobody knew, so they went to the king, Herod, and uh, asked him. And once they left King Herod, um, they, they began the short, because from Herod they found out that the child was going to be born in Bethlehem, so they began the short journey to Bethlehem. And we find in, in uh, Matthew 2, 9, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but we find that they were very, very surprised, and that's indicated by the word low, in Matthew 2 9 and it says also that they were full of exceeding great joy in Matthew 2 9 to again see the star see this tells us that they hadn't seen it since they were in the east when they first saw it and then they made the long trip and then when they left King Herod and they were gonna head to Bethlehem lo there's that star again and they were full of all this exceeding great joy and then it tells us that it actually went and it stood over the very house in which the child Jesus was living with his parents, with Mary and his stepfather Joseph. So, now just think, if this was a star in the sky, how could it appear and then disappear for a couple of years, and then it sh shined in the sky again over Bethlehem, and it went and it stood over a house? If it was way up in the sky, like a meteor or a comet or a planet or a star or something else, you couldn't say it was standing over a house. It'd be almost over a whole city or a whole country. You know, it's so up high. How could you say that it was specifically over a house? Yet this star is acting strange. I mean, it's moving and then it's stopping and it's standing right over a house. So they knew which house to go to. This also tells us, of course, that um, he wasn't in the cave or the, the stable. He was in a house now. All right, well, in my opinion, and I'm just going to throw this out. I said I can't be dogmatic about this star. Um, but the best explanation that I discovered in all my reading was that it was the manifestation of the glory of God. It may have been the same glory of God which led Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees in southern Babylonia over to Israel. I don't know. Um, throughout the Old Testament, we are told that God's glory was manifested as light. You know, he guided, remember, in the, the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness, how he guided them? He guided them with this same glory, which was known as, who knows, the right, Shekinah glory. It would, and it would act just like this star, like the Bethlehem star. It would lead them, and then it would stop. And it would stand still. You can read about that, Exodus 14, 20. It would stand over, right over, the place where God dwelt, which was over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. It would stand right over where God dwelt. Now, in Jesus Christ, even in that little two-year-old Jesus Christ, God was dwelling in a human tabernacle. When, the, when this mysterious Bethlehem star stood over where Jesus was, it was really a reenactment of the Shekinah glory of God standing over the place where God himself dwelt. So that would be my suggestion to you for what the star is.
Jews from the East had come to Israel for only one purpose, and that was, of course, to find the one who was born king of the Jews so that they might worship him. Despite the dark and pagan world which surrounded them, I was supposed to have that picture up already, I'm sorry, they had heard God's voice. They heard God, even though they grew up and lived in a very dark world, they had heard God's voice through, of course, his prophets, his spokesmen, and his word, what little bit of it they might have had. Although they had very limited spiritual privilege, you know, compared to the Jews in Israel, they had very limited spiritual privileges, yet they recognized God's light when it shined on them. And they responded wisely. They responded by seeking him no matter what the cost to them personally. What an example they are to all of us. You know, God promises that those who truly seek him will indeed find him. That's why I don't ever wonder how the, the people in um, uh, Siberia or, you know, they always go to the middle of Africa or somewhere, you say, well, how can they ever get saved? If they will live up to the light within them and realize from creation, you know, anybody can look up at the stars at night and say, there has to be a God. I, I want to know who he is. If they, if they live up to that knowledge that he has put in them, which he's put into every human being, he will give them more light. I know that for a fact. He will give them more light. He won't keep them in darkness if they are truly seeking to know him. He says in Jeremiah 29, 13, and, ye, and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. So the wise men were really wise. <laughs> and when they arrived in Jerusalem and nobody around them was able to tell them where, the, they, they must have been so shocked. How can these people be so stupid? How can they be so ignorant? Because most of the people would look at them like, who are these cuckoos, you know? They dressed funny and they're here looking for the Messiah. And of course, they're the ones with the scripture. And they didn't get any answers from the common people, so of course they went to Herod the king um, in complete innocence, you know? They went there innocently thinking that he would be very happy to tell them the whereabouts of the newly, uh, the newly born Jewish king. Or the two year, well, he didn't even know about it either, but he found out from them. But here's where we now discover another response to Jesus Christ that men often have, and it's the response of agitation. Or we could call it the response of seething anger. We have the response of seeking, and now we have the response of seething. And that's what we get when we look at the agitation of Herod. Let's look at verses 3 to 8. <clears throat> when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this, thus it is written by the prophet. See, they knew. They knew where he was supposed to be born. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of these shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately or privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. What a hypocrite. It's interesting. Look back at verse 7 where it says, When he had privately called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently what time the star... He, uh, they wanted to know where the Christ child was going to be born. And he went and he talked to the scribes and Pharisees and found out that he was predicted to be born in Bethlehem. But before he gave the wise men that information about Bethlehem, 
what did he want to know? He wanted to know when they saw the star. You see already, his first priority, he doesn't care where the, the child has been born, and he isn't going to give them that information until he, they give him the information that he wants. He wanted to know how long ago they had seen the star, because then he could figure out how old this child was right now. So he's a, he was a tricky character. All right, the, the two announcements that had been made in the temple, you know, by Anna and Simeon, about two years earlier. We looked at it last week, but now from where we are, it was about two years earlier. Those had probably long been forgotten or neglected by the vast majority of the Jewish people, if they even knew about it. Maybe only Mary and Joseph knew about it. Nobody else even ever heard about the testimony. Well, they did, because Anna went out and told all the people in Jerusalem. But uh, the vast majority of Jewish people never heard anything about that. And then, of course, the announcement by the angelic host, which was made to the temple shepherds, that too had been long forgotten, if indeed it had ever been taken seriously, because after all this testimony came from shepherds, and what do they know? You know, most people didn't even take them seriously. They said they saw all these angels, da-da-da-da-da, so they were probably laughed and scoffed at. Probably by this point in time, Anna and Simeon had maybe even died. Furthermore, the Jews were preoccupied, <clears throat> the Jewish people were just very preoccupied with their daily lives. I mean, they were living under very rough times. They were living under not only a Roman oppression, but they were living under the, the volatile ruler, Herod the Great. And he was, oh, he was something else. I mean, he was an extremely volatile person. You know, we've talked about him a little bit before. He had... Uh, by this point in time, he was um, about 70 years old, which I got to think, isn't that terrible? 70 years old, and he has to go and have all the little two-year-old boys killed in Bethlehem so that they won't be a threat to his throne? I mean, it's going to take them 20 years before they're a man, and he's going to be 90 and probably long gone by then. How ridiculous. Oh, sick. Anyway, he was an extremely jealous and paranoid, a suspicious kind of a guy, and he saw anyone as a threat to his throne, which was not even rightfully his, remember, because he's not even Jewish. He's Idumean. He's a, a usurper of the Jewish throne. Well, at this, by this time, when the wise men arrived, he had already had many people murdered. Um, he had had, in addition to his favorite wife, he'd been married, I don't think I told you this, but he'd been married nine times, and he had his favorite wife, wouldn't you like to be his favorite wife, <laughs> murdered. Her name was Mary Amney. Um, he had her mother killed. He also, by this point in time, when Jesus is two years old, he'd already had three sons murdered. He had his brother and one of his brother-in-laws, who was the high priest of Israel, had him drowned, murdered. I mean, he was just a wicked, wicked... He's the one who had all the nobles killed when he knew he was going to die, so somebody would be crying at his funeral. Well, needless to say, when a very wealthy and prestigious and powerful-looking caravan of wise men from the east came to worship, came to Jerusalem, you know, it, it would attract a lot of attention, this big entourage, and they said, they came to him and they said they came to worship the new king of the Jews. What do you think that did to Herod? Didn't make him a happy camper. I mean, this was not the thing he needed to hear. <clears throat> he was a, this new king of the Jews, whoever he was, he was a threat to his throne. And isn't this a picture of people today? 
so many people today get agitated. Their response to hearing about Jesus Christ is agitation. It's anger. It's seething anger. They don't, um, they, they don't like to hear about him because just like with Herod the Great, they, that he becomes a threat to their own throne. You know, people put self on the throne in their heart. If you could see a little picture with a heart, you know, and in there put a little throne and a big S sitting on it. Most people, self, or a capital letter I, is sitting on the throne. And they don't like to hear about a king. They don't like to hear about one who is Lord. Because that means they might have to get off the throne to let him on the throne. Two cannot sit peacefully together on the same throne. All you have to do is go look through history and find that to be true. And so when someone comes along and tells him, you know, you are really not the highest king. There is a king higher than you to, which, to whom you must submit. They don't like that. They become agitated. So his agitation and his anxiety is really not very difficult to understand in his particular situation, especially since he was sitting already on a political and um, a religious powder keg. He was a very, very unpopular king with the Jewish people. He was a despised usurper of their throne. He didn't even worship their God. And so he had to, continue to continuously fight and kill to keep his position, and he um, had to battle many times with zealous Jews. You know, there were Jews called zealots who were always out in the streets at night slitting the throats of the Roman soldiers, and they were always trying to instigate the Jewish people to have an insurrection up, you know, against the Romans and, of course, against um, Herod as well. And uh, he, had, he had just, not too long before this time, he had had two very popular Jewish rabbis murdered. One was named um, Judas and the other was named Matthias because they had tried to stir up their fellow uh, loyal followers in an insurrection against Herod. He had placed some symbol of an eagle right in front of the temple and just got the Jewish people very irritated and upset with him. And so these two rabbis tried to start an insurrection, and he had them murdered. So right at this point in time, he is not at all popular. So he's in a very precarious position. And then, you know, seemingly from out of nowhere arise, arrives this uh, group of elite and wealthy magi. And they begin asking about the king of the Jews. So his intense paranoia and his jealousy are, again, unleashed. However, this man is, was a, is a type. He's a, a foreshadowment, a picture of the coming Antichrist. Because that man's going to be just like Herod the Great, except, you know, intensified a thousand times. But he's going to be smooth. He's going to be like just as the smoothest politician you can imagine. And people are going to fall for it. People are going to believe it. And that's what we really see here a little bit with Herod because he, did, he apparently did a marvelous job in keeping his feelings hidden from the wise men because he said to them, in effect, you know, very calmly, although inside he was bubbling up with anger, he, but he said, go to Bethlehem and, and then report to me, you know, after he found out it would be Bethlehem where the Messiah was to be born, he said, go to Bethlehem and I want you to make a full report and then please come back to me so that I can also go and worship this special child. What a hypocrite. I know we, we, have, we know that that was not his intention at all, and we know that from the fact of what he did do in verse 16. 
Now, Matthew 2.3 gives us the initial clue as to the true response of Herod because it says when Herod had heard these things from the wise men, he was what? Troubled. And that's a Greek word for greatly agitated. And who else was greatly upset and troubled? All Jerusalem with him. You can imagine uh, that they would be very upset when their usurper king was upset because knowing when he got upset that heads flew, people got killed and murdered, all in Jerusalem would likewise be upset. Whenever Herod got agitated, usually it was followed by the shedding of blood. So everybody was on um, alert. Well, and they would have all known about the arrival of the Magi because you can't keep something like that secret. Like I said, it was a big caravan and everybody in Jerusalem would have known. It wasn't just three little guys walking into the, the palace there. It was this big entourage and they were very wealthy and so everybody in Jerusalem would be talking about them and finding out why they were there. Well, as soon as Herod discovered why the Magi had traveled such a dis distance to come to um, Jerusalem, he gathered together his chief priests. There he is talking to them. He gathered together his chief priests and scribes to inquire of them where the Christ or the, the, the Christ. It's interesting that he used the word Christ. Herod used the word Christ. That tells us that he knew the Magi were actually talking about God's anointed one. He knew about the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and he used the word Christ. He, he, um, he, he gathered together the chief priests and the scribe to find out where the Christ would be born. And they immediately, without any hesitation, these are the religious leaders, they knew. They told him about the prophecy found in Micah 5.2, which says that he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, which was only about five or six miles outside of Jerusalem. So this leads us now to the third human response as to the news about Jesus Christ, and that's the apathy of the chief priests. Now, there's nothing to read, but I'm just going to talk about it. It's implied here. It's interesting in sort of a pathetic sense um, that to find out that although the priests and the scribes, you know, the religious rulers of Israel, knew the Scripture, I mean, they knew immediately to go to Micah 5.2, and... Um, even though now they heard firsthand why the Magi, these wise men, had come all the way from the east, traveled two years to get there, and that they had seen a star, a mysterious star in the sky, and they were there because they had calculated from Daniel. I mean, they knew all this stuff, and yet they themselves, the religious leaders of Israel, demonstrated absolutely no interest in the possible arrival of their Messiah. Do you find any of them traveling the five or six miles to go down to Bethlehem to find the house where the Christ child is? No, we don't read of them going down there and presenting any gifts. And so in their reaction, we have yet another response that men have to the news about Jesus Christ. And that is, I think, the saddest of all. That is the response of apathy. Or just total indifference. Total indifference. The religious men of Jesus' day, for the most part, were so content with their, their religion, you know, with their rituals and their traditions and their feast days and all their ceremonies, that the news of the arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, didn't even stir their curiosity enough for them to go and investigate the facts for themselves. And they didn't have to travel two years to get there. It would have taken them maybe an hour to travel. I don't know how far 
how long it would take to go five or six miles, not very long. But they didn't even, I mean, their head knowledge was far greater than their heart knowledge. And this is a danger among those in religion. You know, we can have all the facts about Christ up here, but if they never reach our heart and stir us to draw closer to Christ, then, then it's like the, the letter of the law does what? Kills and destroys. Because you have the knowledge about the truth, but you don't do anything about it. You reject, I mean, you know it, but you don't, you don't react to it. You don't come to it with your whole being. It's the spirit that you have to respond to. The spirit of the law gives life because it convicts you that you need to do something about that knowledge. So they had head knowledge, but n no heart knowledge. And we find, really, we find the same response among people today. Although I think more and more, as I said last week, we're finding more of the response of agitation than we are of apathy. Although there are indeed still many apathetic people. And unfortunately, most of the apathetic people are the ones sitting in the churches. They're, they're comfortable going to church, appeasing their guilt, their conscience, by going to church and sitting there for a one-hour service and getting a little sermonette. You know, a lot of churches only give a sermonette, maybe a five-minute sermon. Um, a lot of preachers read one verse of Scripture and use that as a springboard to give their opinions about something or talk about something political or uh, give you the social gospel. But, um, and so then people can leave and they have their consciences appeased because they, well, I've been to church this week. I've done my thing. But most, I think, most apathy is found within religion, uh, especially in, in Christendom in this day and age. You know what the Lord Jesus said about those who are lukewarm? He was basically saying, give me a Herod the Great any day because that guy at least knows he's cold. I mean, he's so cold, he knows his condition. He knows he's a sinner and how lost he is. But people who sit in the church are lukewarm. They don't feel their coldness. They think they're okay. I'm better than this guy, so I'm okay. I go to church, da-da-da-da-da. But Jesus said he, he wants to spit them out of his mouth, spew them out of his mouth. There are so many who are just simply content with the status quo of their lives. Well, the wise men as I said before, had far less knowledge about the true God than did the chief priests of Israel because they did not, you know, they might have had a little bit of the scriptures. They might have had a little bit of Daniel and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Maybe they knew about Balaam and maybe they knew about Jeremiah, but they sure didn't have the whole Old Testament scriptures and have studied them their whole lives like the chief priests and the scribes had. And yet with what little knowledge they knew about Christ, they were willing to respond in belief and they sought him at great personal expense to themselves. However, as I said, the religious rulers of Israel weren't even interested enough to go the five or six miles to investigate. Well, after Herod received the information from the Jewish leaders regarding the Messiah's birthplace, then he secretly asked the Magi when the star had first appeared. And this would tell him, you see, the approximate age of this new king of the Jews, this promised um, Messiah, this child. And because of the fact that we know Herod had every male child in Bethlehem two years of age and younger killed, we, that's where we can conclude that it took the wise men um, about two years. They had seen the, the star two years earlier and it had taken them approximately two years to get there. 
Now, the words young child, which are used in verses 9 and 11 in the Greek, specifically speak of a young child, pedia. It's not the word for infant, so we know he was indeed no longer an infant. Jesus was, at this point in time, a toddler. And a two-year-old is, of course, a toddler. So Herod told the Magi uh, to proceed with their mission um, to, to go down there and, and find out what they could and then return to him and give them a full report. And he deceitfully told, of course, you know, that he wanted to go where the child was so that he could likewise worship him. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the um, apathy of the chief priests. Let's move on to the adoration of the wise men, and we'll close with this. Let's look at verses 9 to 12 of Matthew 2. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, that means surprise, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And let me just read the last verse. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Matthew recorded for us here not only how greatly the wise men rejoiced when they once again saw this special star, um, but he also tells us that then it led them to a certain house over which it stood still. That's why I said this is not a regular star by any means. And when the men, when the, the Magi entered into the house, they saw Jesus with his mother, Mary, and immediately what did they do? They fell down and they worshipped, what's it say? Him. Did they worship her? No. If Mary was to be worshipped, this would be the number one place in the Bible for that to have taken place. This would have, if Mary was to be worshipped, this would be your prime place, Holy Spirit, to tell us that they fell down and worshipped her, or they fell down and worshipped him and her. But it doesn't say that. They fell down and they worshipped him, not Mary. Uh, now, for the, now we find out that Mary and Joseph decided to live where? In Bethlehem. They did not return to Nazareth. Now, why do you think they didn't go back to Nazareth? This is some two years later. The census had taken them from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. They stayed in Bethlehem to have the baby Jesus circumcised when he was eight days old. And then, yes, we can understand they stayed around another 40 days to have her cleansed at the temple and him redeemed from the priesthood if indeed he was but why are they still there two years later in a house living in a house why didn't they go back to Nazareth well we don't know but we can speculate that perhaps they didn't go back to Nazareth because there might still be gossip about Mary's pregnancy you know if they go back there and to avoid that they stayed in Bethlehem also Bethlehem was a much better place for them to raise their special child because remember Nazareth was an outpost for the Roman soldiers it was a a military town it was a very bad place to raise children 
Um, and especially, you know, since Bethlehem was so much closer to Jerusalem, the holy city, and so much closer to the temple, they may have just decided that it was a better place for them to raise their son because it was David's city, and after all, he was, they knew, David's greater son. He was the Messiah. So for whatever reason, they stayed in Bethlehem. Um, well, the Magi fell down, worshipped him, and they opened, it says they opened up their treasures that they had brought him, and they presented him with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And those gifts were symbolically meaningful, as was, of course, everything, everything, absolutely everything about the life of our Lord. Gold, of course, is the most precious metal that this world produces. And gold is symbolic of what? Royalty. Of course, you always picture gold with royalty. Gold is the symbol for a king. It's the symbol of royalty or kingship. And frankincense, um, which happens to come from both Africa and Arabia, and Frank because of the fact that it does come from Arabia, which is um, to the east of Israel, they, that's where they get the speculation that these wise men may have come from Arabia, like Saudi Arabia. Frankincense comes from there, and um, it is a, I have some. Somebody brought me back some when they were in the Middle East once, and I have it in a little bag, but I can't remember where I put it because I was going to bring it today and pass it around. And I took a whiff of it, and it is absolutely fragrant. It is just mm, something else to smell. It was very, very, very costly, very expensive. And it was used um, in uh, burning to pagan gods as well as the Jewish people themselves used it in their grain offerings in the temple. So it was considered to be the incense of deity. I guess they said it had the best smell of all, so it was the incense for the gods. So gold symbolized royalty and kingship whereas frankincense represented deity, you see? And Jesus Christ is both king and he's also God. And then the third gift, myrrh, comes from, it's an aromatic, it also smells good, but not as good as frankincense. It um, comes from a shrub, which is a species of the balsam wood. And it also grows in Arabia. So there is, you know, more of a clue that these wise men came from Arabia than anywhere else because of the gifts that they brought. Myrrh was combined with several other spices. The mixture was used in the preparation of bodies for burial. So the gold speaks of kingship, the frankincense speaks of deity, and the myrrh speaks of suffering. It speaks really of humanity and suffering and death. And we know, of course, that Jesus Christ was not only 100% God, he was 100% man. And he came, he was born to die. And he would suffer, and he would go to the cross for us. Now, it's very likely that the gifts were provided by sovereign God. He's the one who orchestrated all of this. He's the one who um, had those wise men so wise and saved probably at an early day and um, so interested in the Jewish God and in the Jewish Messiah. He's the one that showed them the star and had them come from the east with these wonderful gifts. He did this. God did all this in order to provide, um, I think, a dish, not only the symbolism that we have from their gifts, but also to provide a way to finance for his son's life. 
and you know joseph shortly after this is going to have a dream where he's told to pick up immediately and take his wife and his child over to egypt joseph is a very poor person we know this because they couldn't even offer a lamb in the temple they had to take two turtle doves or two pigeons so they're very very poor he's just a carpenter and um it's, it would be just like god the father not to put a burden on joseph to raise his son because jesus is god's son and so these gifts, these very, very expensive gifts, would not only help finance the trip that Joseph would have to make to Egypt, and then a little bit later, the trip back. And then when they got back to Bethlehem, they found out that even a worse king was reigning, and they, so they went back up to Nazareth to finance that trip. But they say these gifts were so valuable. And just think, you know, you're thinking maybe... Um, thinking this okay three kings and three little pots with three little gifts but if there were as many as a hundred kings or whatever you know I don't know and they maybe just had not just one little pot of frankincense but many pots of frankincense they say that these gifts could well have financed the Lord Jesus's entire childhood up to the point where he was old enough to support himself and I think that would be very much like God to take care of his own son so I throw that out to you. Well, in the verse which tells of the wise men's presentation of their gifts to Jesus, we have what, what is prophecy number seven, prophecy fulfillment number seven. I hope you've been keeping up with these in your notes. I haven't been pointing them out, but we have all kinds of different prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the life of Christ. This is the seventh one, and the reason I say it's a fulfillment is because it's a partial fulfillment of Psalm 72.10 and Isaiah 60. Now, let's see, what time is it? I better just skip all this. There are three different kinds of prophecies in the Bible. We have direct prophecies. For example, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. That's a direct prophecy, very simple. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Um, that's a direct prophecy. Then we have what's called type prophecies. Joseph, for example, the whole life of Joseph is a picture, a type of Jesus Christ. The whole life of David in many aspects is a picture or a type prophecy of Jesus Christ. The ark of Noah is a picture or a type prophecy of uh, Jesus Christ. Only one door, you know, one way to safety from judgment, etc., etc. There are lots of beautiful types. The tabernacle, the whole tabernacle is a picture of Jesus Christ. That's the second kind of a prophecy, and those aren't direct. They're not directly spelled out. You have to hunt for them, and you find them, and you get all excited about them, etc. There's also what's called a dual fulfillment prophecy. Now, what we have in the wise men coming to worship Jesus Christ and bringing their gifts of frankincense and, and um, gold and myrrh is what is a, it's a dual fulfillment prophecy. And um, the reason for that is because part of it was fulfilled at the Lord's first coming, but it hasn't been completely fulfilled. The rest of it will be completely fulfilled at his second coming. You see, the Old Testament prophets, when they were writing some of their prophecies, they didn't even really know what they were writing. I mean, for example, when David is writing Psalm 22, he's basically telling about his own sufferings. He doesn't really know that he's predicting the sufferings of the Christ on the cross. So they're writing because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but uh, they don't have the whole big picture. For example, Isaiah, when he's writing in Isaiah 9, verse 6, about a, a, a child is given, a son is born, or the other way around, a child is born, a son is, yeah, a child is born and a son is given, that speaks about 
what we're studying, the first coming of the Lord Jesus. Then the next phrase is, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That leaps over the, the centuries and goes to the second coming. It's in the same verse, but it talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will reign as king of kings and the government will be on his shoulders. <clears throat> so that's a dual fulfillment prophecy. What we have in Isaiah, do you want to flip back to Isaiah so you can take a look at this yourself? Isaiah, what did I say it was? Isaiah 60, all right, and look at um, actually verses 3, 6, and 9. Let me find my, get it there myself. This is really interesting. Isaiah 3, okay. This is, um, I'm going to read 3, 6, and 9. Well, I think I'll skip 9. Let me just read 3 and 6 for now because we're short on time. It says, and this is Isaiah 60, verse 3, And the Gentiles shall come to the light, thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Now look at verse 6. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries, that's another kind of word for camels, of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba, that's speaking of Arabia, Saudi Arabia, shall come. They shall bring what? gold and incense and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord all right this is a prophecy which was partially fulfilled we have Gentiles coming from like a, the area of Arabia and they're carrying gifts with them and two of those gifts are gold and incense which or frankincense and this we find and it's and they're on what dromedaries or camels this, is, this was partially fulfilled when the wise men came from the east to worship. Then they were Gentiles, and they came from the east, and they brought their gold and their frankincense to worship the Lord. But it's not completely fulfilled, and it won't be completely fulfilled until the second coming, when we are told that when Jesus Christ reigns as king of kings in Israel, Gentiles from all over the world will come, and worship him and bring their gifts but notice what gift is missing in this in Isaiah 60 what gift was missing the myrrh we know that this hasn't really totally been fulfilled by the first coming of the wise men because there's no mention of myrrh it this will be fulfilled at the second time at the second coming and there will be no need for myrrh at that point in time because Jesus died once for all and and he will never ever ever suffer and die again so at his second coming no need for the myrrh the myrrh represented his humanity and his suffering and his death so that is fascinating now, verse 12 tells us that they were warned by God in a dream that they should not return to Herod and tell him where they had found the one born king of the Jews. You know, they didn't know that. Herod was so smooth that they probably had planned to go back to him. So God had to warn them in a dream, and therefore they left and they went, um, you know, another route. They didn't go back through Jerusalem. They snuck out probably in the middle of the night, and they went back another route to their own country, and it probably took them another couple years to get back. Now, nothing else about these very strange, unusual visitors from the east is told to us. This is the last we hear about them. But you know what? You can just count on the fact that those wise men 
when they went back to their country they must have been fantastic witnesses for jesus christ in their countries over there to the west of israel and who knows i mean only eternity will tell us how many believers over the centuries have sprung up in those countries of, of arabia you know iraq and iran and wherever else they may have come from because of these very wise men